You're listening to RPI Takes on the World. No, no, no. Take it again. It's got to be bigger than that. This is important, meaningful stuff. But it wasn't important or meaningful. It's just one man giving his opinions on whatever random thoughts enter his mind on that particular day. What is up, you guys? Thanks for checking out the RPI Takes on the World podcast. The first episode, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I appreciate you checking this out. So this week, I'm going to talk about a few different things, um, one of which my father just got through open heart surgery. That was crazy. And he is twice the man that I will ever be. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about why you should never ask a girl if she's pregnant. And even though that seems pretty self-explanatory, I'm going to touch on that. And the last thing I'm going to talk about is fixing the seat in my 1997 Toyota Land Cruiser and what that has to do with you quitting the job you hate. So first and foremost, I'm going to go ahead and uh, talk about my dad's surgery. Um, Yeah, this has been such a crazy, like, I guess two and a half weeks or whatever. My dad's really a pretty healthy guy. He's only 66 years old. And, um, you know, he's not big on doctors. Never has been big on doctors. He's always been relatively healthy. But, you know, he and his brothers and sisters, they're kind of from the old school mindset where it's like, look, if I don't feel sick or if I'm not bleeding profusely, I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not exactly sure where that comes from. My my dad's got a brother and two sisters, and we grew up in an incredibly close family. Like Everybody lived here in Kansas City, so I had all these cousins. It was a great experience growing up, and my grandfather was also in Kansas City, and when I was about 10 years old, he had a heart attack, and it ended up killing him, and he passed away, and I, I want to say it was like 10 to 14 days. Like he had the heart attack, went to the hospital, and a couple weeks later he was gone. And it was heartbreaking, you know, losing my grandfather. Um, and again, he was relatively young at the age of 69. I think my dad was, geez, I don't know, like in his mid, early 30s, early mid 30s, something like that. So I know it was tough on him and his brothers and sisters and stuff like that, obviously. But I think that might have had something to do with the fact that, you know, they, they saw that he had a heart attack and as much as it stinks, you know, dying two weeks later is not all that bad. If you've lived like a pretty good life, there's not a lot of suffering involved there. At least there wasn't for him. And I don't know if that's where the mindset or mentality for my aunts and uncles and my dad came from. But it's just like, look, if, if I don't feel sick, I'm not going to the doctor. And so my sister and I and my stepmother, my my mom passed away back in 2006 and she died from COPD and emphysema. And, you know, she had a lot of hereditary issues. Her parents both died when she was very young from the same thing. Plus she was a smoker for a lot of years. So that probably didn't help. But, you know, I watched my mom suffer for the last six to seven years of her life. And the last two of those years, were completely unbearable for her. And it was it was just a god-awful experience. I mean, first of all, like I said, close family. My mom was just an amazing woman, and watching her suffer like that was terrible. 
But my point has always been like, look to my dad, like you're in your 60s now, you should go get checked out because there's a possibility that, you know, if something happens like a heart attack or a stroke, you know, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to go ahead and pass away, you know, kind of relatively painlessly in a short period of time. I mean, you could be incapacitated in some, you know, just all those things. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to see my dad suffer, obviously. Um, It's just a really, really tough situation. So over the last, I don't know, six or eight months, my dad had started having some breathing issues. And, um, you know, finally, my stepmom, really, my sister and I, we're kind of pulling behind the scenes, but we don't have a lot to say. You know, my family's, we're all pretty stubborn and my dad definitely is stubborn. Didn't want anything to do with going to the doctor. My uh, my stepmom finally got him to go, you know, thank God. And um, a couple of weeks ago, he was getting a checkup and they found a heart murmur, which apparently wasn't that big of a deal, but they wanted to have an echo done just to really, you know, get a better look at what was going on there. And when he went in for that echo, they found out that his heart was beating at about like 34, 35 beats a minute, which is dangerously slow, really slow. And, um, you know, we were lucky. He was at at St. Luke's South here in Kansas City. And St. Luke's is one of the best um, cardiac institutes, one of the best heart institutes in the country. So they took my dad in and, you know, he had about a week before, originally they thought it was just going to be a pacemaker and he had about a week before they ended up saying, okay, you know what, we need to go in and we need to replace a valve. We need to do a couple bypasses. If we're going to do this, you know, we want to fix you before we send you home, which is great. But my whole point is like things like this really bring out someone's character. You know, I mean, because you're faced with all this, you know, your own mortality and this, that, and the other thing. And my dad, as long as I can remember, you know, he was always, he's just this super strong uh, guy, you know, and, and my parents and my aunts and uncles, all the adults that were like really important to me in my life, they all had this characteristic where they were the caregivers, right? They never, ever were the ones that were like, they weren't victims. They didn't want to be, or they didn't like to be taken care of. Um, And it was one of those things when you're a kid, all you know is all you know, right? So I just assumed that this was like how adults acted. Like all adults were like this. Because in my world, all adults were like that, right? So it was something that was uh, interesting, but I remember being young and I was like probably 10 or 12 years old. I grew up on a farm, you know, I don't know, about half an hour south of Kansas City. And the reason we lived on that farm, it wasn't a working farm, but, you know, we always had a few horses. We always had cattle. We had like 10 acres that I grew up on, but then my grandfather had 30 acres attached to that. And my uncle had another three on the other side because my dad, my uncle, and my grandfather were all into horses. So while it wasn't a working farm, like that's not how um, we never made any money doing farming or livestock or any of that kind of stuff, raising livestock or anything like that. 
my dad showed horses and broke horses for fun. Like that was his thing. Right. And, um, I remember being a kid and my dad was working this horse, like this thing. And this horse was, was giving him hell. Right. So this horse ends up like throwing his head at my dad's face. Right. Right? Like, and I remember sitting there and watching my dad, like just not giving an inch to this. I mean, like, my mind was blown because I've always been, I got thrown off of a horse when I was a kid, like when I was small. And I think that was why I was always afraid of horses, man. And and I'll tell you something. It's, it really comes from respect for the animal because they're so big and so powerful. Um, and they really can't smell fear. Like you've got to just command that animal. You've got to alpha that animal or it's going to just own you. So I'm watching my dad trying to break this horse. This horse throws its head at my dad's head. My dad jerks the lead line and throws a right cross and just punches this horse in the face. <laughs> right? He punched this horse in the face. And I'm sitting there like, whole, I, I, I'm a kid. And I am thinking like, man, someday I'm going to be that dude. I'm going to be that strong. I'm going to have life figured out. I'm going to have that incredible dad strength and just those balls, you know, like that, uh, like that, uh, that toughness, right? Well, fast forward last week. So my dad goes in and he ends up waiting like nearly a week in this room. Like, and he was stable. So he was never, um, he was never emergent. Like they never needed to take him in and, you know, just working with the operating room schedule and the doctors and everything and everybody at the hospital was fantastic. But we waited about a week and he did a great job because, you know, he was nervous, but he was being very patient, whatever. He gets in there and he comes out, uh, he goes into open heart surgery, comes out with flying colors, you know. Like I said, I mean, he was on the treadmill two days before, before he went into the, to go see the doctor. He comes out of this surgery. The next day, the doctor is asking my dad on a scale of one to 10, where are you with pain? My dad looks at the doctor and he says, you know, I'm about a three. About a three, okay? (laughs) I mean, the man had his chest sawed open. They were doing all kinds of stuff in there, rooting around. And his pain level is about a three. And at that point, I realized, look, you're never, ever going to have that toughness, that dad strength, all that stuff that 10-year-old me thought I was going to grow into, fully grown me is sitting there saying, look, you're not a man. As a matter of fact, I had just gotten back from like getting my, uh, getting my, my eyebrows waxed and my ears waxed and my nose. It sucks getting old and I hate plucking shit. So I, I got, I, I was a little sore from that. And there's my dad with a with his chest glued shut, saying his pain level is about a three, absolute insanity. And I've just got it. Just it blows my mind at like how much that generation, how strong, especially. I mean, and maybe it wasn't. I'm sure it wasn't in every family, but in my family, that generation is strong. You know, and I'll watch these World War II docs, you know, which was like my dad's dad's generation. 
And those guys were just balls of steel, right? Like they were getting off the getting off the boat at Normandy, just just storming into just storming right into hails of gunfire. Like men, like just men being men, just doing shit. And I just sat there just in awe of all that. You know, it's just incredible. It's incredible. And, you know, thankfully my dad has pulled through it and he's on the road to recovery. He's got like a 12 week rehab that he's going through, you know, like going through physical therapy and all that. But, you know, it it ended up being a, a blessing because if they wouldn't have caught that, you know, he probably would have had a stroke or a heart attack or something, whatever. So hopefully we're going to get another couple decades of, you know, healthy, healthy living for the guy. So we had a lot of time in that hospital, just hanging out. My sister, my stepmom, my stepsisters, you know, my aunts, family, friends, everybody's in there. You know, you're just talking about a lot of stuff. And I've got my sister and my stepsister are both pregnant right now. And they're both due sometime in the next few months. Like they're both due in like May and June, I think. They're close to each other. And uh, it's just crazy because started talking about like the idea that people will come up and be like, when are you due? Like they'll just ask women when they're due. And I'm here to tell you. So we started saying like, well, when's a good idea? Like when, when is it safe to ask that question? And I'm here to tell you, like, unless I know that that person is pregnant, like I saw it on Facebook or I heard from a friend, like, I'm not asking that question. (laughs) And my recommendation to everyone is just don't ever say, hey, when do you do if you don't know that that girl is pregnant or that woman is pregnant, right? Because, man, you are really like, if she's not pregnant and you ask her when she's due, you have just done a boatload of damage, like a boatload of damage. So my recommendation is you just don't ask that question. Like you'll find out, especially if it's somebody you work with, if it's like, you know, somebody that's kind of a peripheral person in your life, you know, don't ask that question. And along those same lines, this is the other thing that that just blows my mind, right? And you'll realize this. If you are married, I'm sure you've already heard it. If you're not married, as soon as you get married, there will be people in your life that will ask you, hey, so when are you guys going to have babies? When are you going to have kids? And I got to be honest with you. I think that is just incredibly ridiculous. Like it blows my mind that people have the audacity to just ask. And I'm not talking about like, look, if your mom is like, when are you going to give me grandbabies? That's one thing. Of course, right? Like mom gets a pass, you know, grandma gets a pass, dad gets a pass because somehow mothers go from you're never, ever having sex. Oh, you graduated college and got married. Boom. I need grandbabies now, which is fine, right? Totally fine. It's kind of cute. It's, it's, it's a sweet thing, right? But if these people that are peripheral people in your life that come up to you and say, Hey, Hey, yeah, you're married. How's married life? First of all, that's a great question. It's awesome. I mean, what are you going to say? Oh my God, it's terrible. I wish I had the biggest mistake I ever made. You can't say that. Even if it is the biggest mistake you ever made, you can't say that to those people. But the fact that they feel comfortable, come up and say, Hey, when are you going to have kids? You know what? None of your business. 
None of your business. It's not like you're going to say to them, I don't know, when are you going to treadmill and losing 25 pounds? You know? Because I feel like it's kind of the same thing. Like, I don't know, when are you going to go back to school so you can get a job that's not like a dead-end job? Like, you know, when are you going to do that? When are you going to get out of that shitty relationship you're in? Like, you would never ask these questions of people, right? Yet, when are you going to have babies is a question that people just, they feel like it's their right. Oh, yeah, you're, oh, yeah, you know, and and it's like, it's always that, like, person at work that you're kind of like, oh, no, I like, you, you bump into them in the break room, and you're kind of like, oh, gosh, oh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, we gotta, we gotta have a conversation now, and then they hit you with the, oh, you're so, you're married, that's great, uh, when are you gonna have kids? No, 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 don't ask me that question. I do not like it. I don't think it's anyone's business, quite frankly, <laughs> when you're going to have kids. That's your own business. You guys figure that out on your own. Because that's the other thing is, man, sometimes, like for women that have issues getting pregnant, and I've had personal experience with this, man, that is also like tragic and devastating. It's, I wouldn't wish that upon my biggest female enemy because it's so difficult. And, you know, if you're in that age group, like let's say 25 to 35, when all of your friends are just having kids left and right, and you're trying, like doing everything, you're going to classes, you're getting, you're doing all the holistic stuff. I mean, you're literally doing everything to get pregnant and you can't get pregnant all your friends are getting pregnant. And then this jackass that you work with comes up to you and is like, oh, when are you guys going to have babies? We're trying, to, <laughs> we're trying to have babies. Like, it's just the worst thing. So my advice about, about pregnancy in general, number one, don't ever ask a woman if she's pregnant. And number two, quit asking people when they're going to have kids. It's none of your damn business. None of your business. So the last thing I'm going to talk about today is my 1997 Land Cruiser and what that has to do with you quitting that shitty job that you hate, right? So to give you a little background on me, I actually worked for myself for 15 years and I was a musician. Um, I graduated from college and I had started a band my junior year of college. So pretty much my senior year, two years after school, we toured. Then we broke up. I came back to Kansas City, my hometown, sold radio advertising for two years, quit that, played music full-time for 15 years. And the last five or six of those 15 years, I spent down in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was just an incredible, incredible experience. And it's really important because when I was down there, I'd gone through a divorce. I was basically starting over with my life. Um I didn't have any kids, so I had no responsibility, and it was just, it couldn't have been better for so many reasons. But professionally, what was so awesome about it was I was down there surrounded by people who were doing things that they were passionate about, and nobody down there was working for the money. I mean, just to to be around people that are hustling, that are just working full-time, going 100 miles an hour doing everything that they can to survive. And I just got so much out of being down there and and being surrounded by people like that. And I moved down to Nashville to write songs because 
I, I never thought of myself as an artist. Like I played music professionally, but I also did, you know, I was more of a writer. I thought writing songs, producing songs, that's where my heart was really at. And that's where you had to go in order to do that. So I moved down to Nashville to write songs, but the way I made a living was playing music in college towns in the SEC. And the reason for that was simple. I'd always played music. Uh, I started out playing at Mizzou when I was in school. And I'd played in, you know, we toured, my college band toured in towns, uh, college towns in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Missouri, Kansas, Arkansas, um, all that stuff. And then when I moved to Nashville, it was just a, a natural fit, a natural progression to move to the schools in the SEC. You know, Nashville was geographically centered there. Um, secondly, it was easy to get into those towns and build a fan base pretty quick if you were good and if you worked it hard. Because... There were always an influx of people and there was a lot of groupthink going on. You know, I mean, like if you were good, then people would be like, we're going out to see this guy play. And if you went down there once a month or a couple times a month, it didn't take long for people to figure out who you were. The other thing was, it was the type of town where people would go out like five nights in a week, not like a, you know, like a city like Kansas City or St. Louis, where people probably aren't going to go out on a Wednesday night, late night. You know, in Auburn and Tuscaloosa and Lexington and Columbia, they're going to do that. So I'd moved to Nashville and things were going really well, but it was almost like a catch 22 because I'd moved to Nashville to write songs. I wasn't making any money writing songs at all. And that, and you just don't like now, if you go down there, you've got a plan to work three or four years at least probably to get in, to get a publishing deal. Um, and then at that point, publish and still publishing deals are they're not what they used to be. So the good news was I was making a living because I was on the road all the time. The bad news was I just wasn't writing the songs. I wasn't writing enough songs because I was only writing one or two days a week. I wasn't writing five days a week like I really needed to be. And I got to the point where I was driving 85,000 miles a year. I was on the road Wednesday to Sunday and I woke up and I'm like, look, I don't want to be playing college bars when I'm 40 years old. And that's exactly what I was doing. So I decided just to completely downshift. I moved back to Kansas City and I get a job, ironically, like crazily enough, at the exact same radio station I'd worked at right out of college, which was cool because the owners were different, management was different, but there were a lot of the same people there. And I came back into this place and the people at this station were fantastic. I mean, I'm still friends with all with everybody that worked there, right? But the ownership and upper management just it was such a poorly run company that the atmosphere was incredibly toxic and i knew within like 2 weeks that i was not going to last like i knew this was not the place i was going to be for a long time i also knew that i've been out of corporate america for 15 years so i couldn't just quit 2 weeks in because my resume would look super sketchy so i knew i had to stick it out for a couple years but what was so crazy is i'd gone from this atmosphere where everybody was just working as much as they possibly could for really no money doing something they loved. And then I'd come into this atmosphere where people were miserable making in some cases quite a bit of money. Right. Um, and it was just such a, it was such a wild shift for me. And I was sitting there and I just remember like I'd started in February of 16 by January of 2017, I was like, I've got to get out of here. And I ended up, 
I was doing some some social media work for some of my clients on the side for free, and I had built up a couple case studies, and I thought there might be something there, but I didn't know how do you package that, how do you charge for it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in the next six months, I'd figured that out. And so at this point, I'm going to tell you what fixing the Land Cruiser seat has to do with quitting that job that you hate, right? So I have this 1997 Toyota Land Cruiser, and I love this old truck. It's just a beast. I love it so much. It was the first thing that I bought after my divorce that wasn't like a, it wasn't a necessity. It was something that I wanted, right? Because I had a van that I toured in, but I bought this old truck to roll around Nashville in. Just It was just something that I, because I didn't want to drive around a van, um, and so this thing was just incredible, but here's the thing. I'm not a car guy at all. Like, I don't know. I can change a tire if I need to, but I don't know how to change oil. I don't know how to do anything with cars. Right. So I got this 97 Land Cruiser and it's got, uh, the, it's got the automatic seats in it and the automatic seat on the passenger side was broken and stuck. And so again, I can't fix anything. I get on YouTube and within five minutes, I found a video and within 25 minutes, I'd fixed the seat in my Land Cruiser. And I'm here to tell you that if you're in a job that you hate, if you're in a job that you love, then Godspeed, you know, just kill it. Just keep killing it. But I was surrounded by all these incredibly intelligent people that were great people, that were hardworking people that were trapped at this company that just did not value them at all right? And I'm here to tell you that if you are in a situation like that, then you can figure out a way to make a living. Like there's never been a better time to just say, you know what? I love fishing. So how do I start a business around that? You know, because it it doesn't mean like if you love golf, it doesn't mean you have to become a pro golfer, but you can, you can figure out a way to make a living in that vertical. And there's never been a better time to do research. If there's somebody that's doing what you want to do, you can find out how to do it. I mean, there's this old saying that success leaves clues. And that's always been true. But the reality of it is now, success leaves clues and they're so easy to find. I mean, everything is right there. So my point to you is, if you're sitting there, if you're in a job and you're not loving it, you don't quit that job tomorrow, obviously. What I had to do was I figured out what I wanted to do in January of 2017. By March or April, maybe May, I had a buddy of mine at work had come to me. You know, we were both just going back and forth, like, dude, we got to get out of this place. It sucks, blah, blah, blah. And he had told me about this, this guy that had done something in radio advertising back in the 80s that was, you know, doing, he was doing creative for clients on a retainer basis. And I'm like, oh, that's it. That's how I can figure this out. That's how I can package what I'm doing, right? So at that point, I started booking, first of all, I started booking shows in February. Cause I was just saving money. I'm like, I think I'm going to go out and work on my own. So in January of 2017, I decide I got to quit February. I start booking shows. So I'm working two jobs because I knew I, I, I was onto something where I thought I could go to work for myself by July of 2017. 
I had signed up my first two social media clients, right? And I got them on board. So in July of 2017, I had three jobs. And I was essentially getting up at five in the morning, working on my social media business from five to 7.30. I was selling radio advertising from eight or 8.30 until five or 5.30. And I was coming home. I was working for a couple more hours at night on the social media stuff. And then on the weekends, I was playing music. So on Friday, I'd wake up at five in the morning, go sell radio all day. And then I would drive to Columbia, Missouri, play music, drive back to Kansas City and get home at like 4.30 or five o'clock in the morning. So I was up for 24 hours from Friday to Saturday. And then Saturday, I'd go play music, usually somewhere in Kansas City. Um, I did that September. I picked up two more social media clients. So now I got four social media clients and I've got my full-time radio job and I've got, I'm playing music. But the thing of it is, I knew that I was working towards something and I knew that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. So if there's something that you want to do, you can find a way to make the money that you need to make. For me, I was lucky because I'd always played music and I was able to do that in in the off hours. I knew I could make, uh, you know, I could make a living doing that. But even if I didn't have that, I would have been out, I would have gone out, I would have bartended, I would have waited tables, I would have done anything to get money coming in. My point is, if you are in that situation, just find a way out. Get your mind right. Start focusing on the things that you want. And then I promise you, if you do that, you will start to find ways to get that stuff. I mean, it took me so long to figure out that if there was something bad in my life, I just have to walk away from it. And I spent so many years settling for things. And finally, I don't know when it happened. I just woke up and I was like, look, if if I'm not, if somebody's disrespecting me, I, I mean, I'll talk to them. I'll, I'll talk to them about it. But if it doesn't change quickly after we have a conversation, then I'm out. And that's professionally and personally. I don't even believe there's that much of a difference between professional and personal life in 2019 because we're all so tied to what we're doing. I mean, I don't know anybody that truly clocks out when they leave and leaves their office at work, right? So remember that. Don't settle. You don't have to. If you're in a job that you hate, if your boss doesn't respect you or value your time, get out. That's a good note to leave this on, you guys. I appreciate you all checking this out. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at RPI Takes. The website will be up soon. Please rate, subscribe, all that good stuff. I appreciate y'all listening to me very much, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to RPI Takes on the World. Please share with your friends, subscribe, rate, and review. 